Today on Speaking Out of Place, we talk with Jennifer Jacquet, who is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Studies and director of XE, Experimental Humanities and Social Engagement at New York University. She's also deputy director of NYU's Center for Environmental and Animal Protection. Her research focuses on animals and the environment, on agnotology, and attribution and responsibility in the Anthropocene. She's the author of the playbook, How to Deny Science, Sell Lives, and Make a Killing in the Corporate World, a work of epistolatory nonfiction, which makes the business case for scientific denial. Among other things, we learn how corporations create an arsenal of experts and pseudo-experts at prestigious universities to create misinformation and disinformation for corporate profit and at great cost to the public. At the end, we make the case for a partnership between the sciences and the humanities to fight such lies and violence. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm going to do something that I did with Malcolm Harris when he was talking about his book, Palo Alto, The History of Capitalism, California, and the World. Just a few days before we taped, two very interesting things happened in the news. One, the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and the other one was the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. And I said, so Malcolm, let's talk about those things and let's loop in your book into these things that are happening that seem to confirm so much of your analysis. And it just so happens, Jennifer, that I'm sure you know these stories. I'm just relating them to the audience. This is July 5th, The Guardian. More than 1,500 lobbyists in the UK are working on behalf of fossil fuel companies, while at the same time representing hundreds of liberal-run cities, universities, technological companies, and environmental groups they say are tackling the climate crisis. Lobbyists for oil, gas, and coal interests are also employed by a vast sweep of institutions, ranging from the city governments of Los Angeles, Chicago, and Philadelphia, tech giants such as Apple and Google, and more than 150 universities, some of the country's leading environmental groups, even ski resorts, seeing their snow melted by global heating. So that's story one. Story two, New York Times, June 19th. On Capitol Hill and in the courts, Republican lawmakers and activists are mounting a sweeping legal campaign against universities, think tanks, and private companies that study the spread of disinformation, accusing them of colluding with the government to suppress conservative speech online. The effort has uncovered its targets with expansive requests for information and, in some cases, subpoenas, demanding notes, emails, and other information related to social media companies and the government dating back to 2015. Complying has consumed time and resources and already affected this group's abilities to do research and raise money, according to several people involved. And a footnote to that, they are, of course, as you know, studying Stanford, and they're trying to dig into student records, which is really creepy. So I'm going to sit back and let you comment on these two newsworthy events. Okay, great. Thank you. And what you're seeing or hearing is the playbook in action. And what I really like about the coverage for the first story is what they're doing here is getting really smart about leveraging customers against one another with the PR world. So PR is fundamentally work for hire. They're not essentially good or essentially bad. They are 
there to do the bidding of their clients, as they love to say. So this is something they've stood behind frequently when they've been accused of representing oil and gas, as they just say, we're just doing work on behalf of our clients. What I wish you had been able to report, and I haven't seen these numbers in general, is how much bigger often these contracts are from polluters than from the liberal cities or the NGOs mm. who are also hiring these same firms. So the real problem is that the PR firms then will not do work that fundamentally compromises their contracts with their largest customers. And as a result, they may not be working as hard for 350.org mm -hmm. as they are for ExxonMobil. So we need on top of just understanding who the clientele is, we need to understand the size and duration of the contracts. And that's something that is not really as well understood as it could be. Definitely. The second story is about essentially harassment. It's saying that disinformation research is a threat to political free speech or varieties of that argument. And what you see here is also a kind of iteration of the playbook because FOIA, for instance, the Freedom of Information Act, it has traditionally been used by reporters and potentially academics and activists to investigate university ties to industry. And now they're turning these tactics on their heads and they're doing the same thing. So the famously fossil fuel companies did that to Michael Mann, the climate scientist, FOIAing his emails, trying to make Make his life essentially very difficult. The companies are very smart or at least very agile and very well resourced. And so they are able to take these tactics that may traditionally lie in a sort of democratic system and turn them against the system. Exactly. All the FOIAs and all that was supposed to be for transparency. And what they're doing is obfuscation. Let's talk about one more thing before we get to the playbook specifically. We met at this conference at Stanford on agnotology, and we heard your great talk and many others. Maybe if you could talk about that cluster of presentations and then narrow it down into the playbook, because I think it makes it an interesting context for your book. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I Ignatology was a term coined to refer to the study of the creation of ignorance. And there are all sorts of subfields of that discipline. And one of those, for instance, that Peter Gallison presented on and has written about previously is secrecy and the U.S. government and how that relates to data and other issues. And then there are other kinds of magnet that you might study, you know, why a certain section of America doesn't believe that Barack Obama was born in the United States of America. That's a different vein of agnotology. The form of agnotology I'm most interested in is that which is born of the private sector and has this very predictable pattern of engagement. I'm interested in corporate-led ignorance, and that is what the playbook is all about. Right. I'm glad you mentioned the predictable pattern because you chose a really interesting rhetorical formula for the book. Can you explain what it is and how you hit upon it? Well, the playbook is written by my alter ego, who is a corporate consultant. She is vying for a position at her own, maybe executive position at a PR firm someday, but is currently doing some consulting for industry and cobbling together the playbook strategies from various industries over the last century. 
country. And so the playbook is written from the perspective of the corporation. And that was strategic in all sorts of ways. The main reason for doing that was simply that I thought it would give me insight into the pattern. In fact, it did. When I was at NYU, I was affiliated faculty in the Stern School of Business and am very aware of the gestalt of corporate speak. So sometimes that got a little old. You may have experienced that yourself, but it allowed me to use phrases like the corporation is the engine of prosperity and pull from the lexicon that I think we're all steeped in and a little tired of the greatness of the private sector. And at the same time, it also allowed me to really see the problem from that angle, which is, as I present in the very first chapter, that scientific denial is a fiduciary duty. That this is just a very predictable outcome, actually, of a capitalist system. And it's not, therefore, very shocking. It's just very powerful. Yeah. You say that very well. The idea is that the duty is to the shareholders, not to the public, right? And the public is this wider swath of human beings that don't really matter. They have their own corporations that they've invested in, but your people are the stockholders. I want to give the listeners a flavor of the discourse and read a paragraph. This is at the beginning. Every executive should own a copy of the playbook and hope never to have to use it. But if there comes a time that scientific knowledge poses a risk to business operations, the playbook is a guide on whom to hire, how to recruit experts, tips for executive communication, and ways to successfully challenge the science, the policy, and the scientists, reporters, and activists using science to further their policy agendas. I didn't know you had an appointment in a business school, so you're kind of like a secret agent there in a very <laughs> subversive way. It's wonderful. Oh, well, I mean, that was earned because I also was an <laughs> econ major and did a master's in economics. And so I've been living in this culture for a while and trying to to figure out how it would ever serve me. So finally, it did. Oh, wow. That's a whole new angle. How did you pull yourself out of that? That's a very powerful orbit to be in. Well, it never was an orbit for me because I was a double major in environmental studies and economics. So I always had one foot in with the granola and one foot in with the suits. And then when the time came to decide where to do my PhD, I did it on the side of the granola and worked with a biologist for my PhD. But it's all to say that I was encouraged, especially by my parents, that this was the avenue to having a not just successful life. I think it was really just about like feeding oneself, you know, being able to have a career at all. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you say this for all my students at Stanford, because what you just described is so prevalent these days. I mean, even more these days than when you were an undergrad is the sense that you have students that are very conscious of things like climate change, but also aware of material necessity. And their parents, of course, love them and they want to take care of what they can most concretely, which is a viable major. So you're a success story in so many different ways. You describe denial, and you named three different stages. So I'd like you to tell the audience about that. But first, you say, this is again, you speaking in this other voice. Denial is an investment. Delay is the deliverable. The measure of success is the degree and duration of government gridlock, the holding strategy, or the not-so-fast strategy that permits continued sales of the product. What about climate change? For example, also delay creates a habit. So can you tell us about these three waves of denial? 
cobbling together the research for this, I really saw three eras. And then they're like waves in the sense that they overlap. So the first wave of corporate-led denial, again, this branch of agnotology, occurs in the early 20th century when you have asbestos-led and radium companies confronting real issues with worker safety. In the case of asbestos, the workers were getting this form of terminal illness related to breathing in the microfibers. And the form of denial that they employed there was lying directly to the worker's face that anything was wrong. And then, of course, denying that the product itself had any causation once the worker made discovery that they were on the road to death. And there were a bunch of early lawsuits that sort of got buried because of the depression and nothing really came of them. And so the asbestos industry bought itself many decades of social license to continue operating. And then there's the second wave that's related to consumer products like tobacco that was about denying, again, that tobacco caused cancer or later years, you know, that sugar or salt led to diabetes or hypertension. And then the third wave, all of these are still in existence. But of course, the enormous power and persuasion of the oil and gas industry to deny the existence of climate change. And that I describe as broadly environmental and animal related issues. And I'd say we're still very much in the midst of that and all of the, again, these other things. And then the other thing that happens is as governments become more powerful or let's say more democratic or exercising the will of the people and they're able to do that effectively, they become more threatening. And so the tactics also escalate. And the tactics go into a realm that is really, to me as an educator, incredibly dangerous and depressing, which is to recruit experts, to recruit people who are here supposedly to produce knowledge, no matter what direction it takes you, you follow the truth, you follow the facts, and you act in the public good. Again, it's something that's a service. It's not calculated for profit or for any particular ideology. And then the task for the corporation following the playbook is, as you say, quote, to prepare to challenge scientific knowledge that could lead to public disapproval, litigation, and especially government regulation. The corporation must build and mobilize an extensive arsenal made up of individuals, institutions, and communications networks. In most cases, this extensive arsenal of people and firms will ascend to the status of an integrated web or network. So tell us about this very scary and very real arsenal that then becomes networked, obviously, into communications, corporations, and other kinds of media. But talk about the guts of this network. Who's being recruited and how do they come to be able to present things that are supposedly unbiased and neutral, but obviously have the flavor of, to put it crudely, knowledge? Yeah, no, it, the arsenal is pretty intimidating because like any arsenal, it just gets bigger the more money you have. And so initially, this kind of war was fought vis-a-vis the corporation and its CEOs and executives and maybe doctors in the case of asbestos and the public or its employees. But as, of course, more is understood about the corporation and more gets revealed, the tactics change and become more hidden, done through third parties. And so we see the rise of things like trade associations who will do a lot of the dirty work on behalf of corporations. So Burger King and Donald's can say, we care about the customer. We believe in public policy to protect public health. And the trade associations that they belong to can actually do the bidding of fighting those regulations. But my deep interest, and the reason I wrote the book, of course, was with this direct battle with scientific knowledge. I'm interested in the policies that come out of that knowledge, but I'm really interested in the bedrock. And what you pointed out, that's why I have a whole chapter dedicated specifically 
specifically to the issue of university experts, because that's really the creme de la creme of their operations when it comes to science, right? Because those are the most credible scientists are ones that are at great universities. And they understand that while you, maybe David, have some moral scruples about things like the truth and these antiquated ideas of who you're serving and what knowledge is, there are enough professors, one, two, three, four percent, who are willing to sell out. And that is a real problem because it then presents in some cases, in some disciplines, in some industry issues, a genuine rift in the science. Now, what's so interesting is in the case of climate change, as Naomi Oreskes pointed out in her interview here, she was saying, I actually find scientific consensus. They weren't able to employ scientists to not find a fingerprint of anthropogenic climate change. They weren't able to pull that off. And when they're not able to do that, what they do instead is create an arsenal of expertise who just create the illusion of disagreement. And they were so successful at doing that with climate change that it's remarkable because there actually was scientific consensus there wasn't this giant rift in the scientific community. And for decades, they created an illusion of disagreement that we all bought. And they were able to do that using Stanford University, Rockefeller University, these names of institutions as well as individuals, but they're not actually publishing science. And so I think it deserves a kind of special carve out of all of the tactics because it really says, actually, these systems are working pretty well. Yeah. You're just not getting the right information. And they do that again through the media and PR firms and controlling the dialogues and press releases and journals and especially their relationship with the media is very privileged. We will very shortly get to a case here at Stanford, which I'm sure you know about. But just to set that up, you mentioned, for example, there was this person, Dr. Carl Seltzer, who was a part-time staff at the Peabody Museum at Harvard, who described an early medical study linking smoking and heart disease. And the tobacco industry recruited him to do research and often referred to him as a Harvard scientist. So here he is having really no expertise whatsoever. But by the very fact that on a paycheck someplace, there's a Harvard that affiliates him with a university. Another one is Davis's Dr. Miltower, was not trained in climate science, nor is he an air quality expert, and his PhD is in animal science from Texas Tech, but that's not stopped him from effectively challenging scientific studies that implicate cows and climate change. So the case that I'm referring to is one which might can be sued, but that's life. Scott Atlas. Scott Atlas is not an epidemiologist. He was an anesthesiologist. And he very early on in the pandemic began to make these ridiculous statements over and over again. He was so successful in selling this particular line of products, so to speak, that he became Trump's advisor. And now he's DeSantis's advisor in Florida. And it was very difficult, if not impossible, for colleagues here to bring this to the attention of our president, who kept saying, no, he has academic freedom. That was the mantra. And we kept saying, no, academic freedom is not detachable from academic responsibility. This is not science, etc. I think it was more than 200 people from the medical school signed a letter protesting this, and Atlas sued them for whatever infringement of his academic freedom. You say that no universities, to your knowledge, established any studies of disinformation, but rather the reverse. Many 
many universities have entire administrative units devoted to doting on deep-pocketed donors in the hopes of securing a large grant or gift agreement. So there seems to be this absence of diligence, a reluctance to criticize for whatever reason, and a appetite to bring in money. And this is what we see in the Dora School. They do some amazing things, but it's, for many of us, compromised by the fact that one of the first things that the dean said upon the announcement of the school coming into being was that they were not going to rule out taking money from fossil fuel companies and that, well, scientists can be impartial. And Naomi and Ben have done so much work shooting that down. But can you talk about some of the ways in which people get around this? They get around things like different kinds of conflict of interest agreements. They game the system. So they squeeze things through or they get things maybe not through in a whole cloth, but just enough to build an inference in a certain mediascape to expand it into something that it's not. Yeah, I think so much of this is still unfolding in real time. To your point about Scott Atlas and that case, you point out right at the beginning about your credentials versus your credibility. And I want to be clear that I'm not sure how much my degrees give me credibility to write the playbook, but you have to judge a scholar by their work, their scientific work. That's still the currency in the work that we do. And what you're often finding is that they're relying on either their weak training or just slightly relevant training. And their very strong institution, in the case of Carl Stelzer, having Harvard there as the name, to really do the work for them, that they don't have 40 publications on COVID or any other infectious disease. And instead, they are being called a Stanford scientist says this. And obviously, that just isn't what anyone thinks of in terms of true expertise. They really want to see. But that is also, again, part of the media is failing. Journalists are writing things very quickly. They might Google someone and they don't necessarily get into what is their training, how much have they published, and what are their various financial interests in this issue. And that's something I would love to see happen moving forward, not just the universities taking financial interests seriously, but media outlets and mm. sort of quotes used in pieces about science really taking financial interests seriously. To your question also about the universities being implicated, I think universities are really going to have to grapple with the fact that they've traditionally seen money as money. And now we're seeing that money having serious consequences for their reputation. And what I hope moving forward is that students who are the consumer at universities might even choose universities that are more committed to knowledge than to money. And I think the more we can get students to see the value in a faculty and in an institution that prioritizes truth over money, the more we'll see the universities move in that direction. Right now, of course, what's been prioritized is high overhead rates the more money that comes in, the better athletics we can offer in student facilities. We're losing some of that foundation, I think, of what universities were built on. And we've lost it as individuals, too. As you know, we all have friends and colleagues who in this business who are happy to get large grants, yep. regardless of where they come from. And you referred to conflicts of interest and Robert Proctor so well pointed out that he does not like the term conflicts of interest. So I'm choosing to use the term financial interest because I think they're unique. Okay. A conflict of interest is what happens when you're a doctor, you've taken a Hippocratic oath, and now you're getting some money from pharmaceutical companies, and then you have a conflict of interest because you've said, I'm going to take care of this patient at any cost. But on the other hand, I really want to recommend Vioxx because I have a contract with them. There's a conflict. 
But I think in many of these cases, and for many of the people I've researched for the book, there is no conflict. Everyone's on the same page. They just want more money. The university, the individuals, and the corporations want the brands. So there's just financial interest in the outcome. Right. You mentioned briefly in, in that response about the media. And what was scary is one of the examples you gave of workarounds, which is that people that might want to promote some point of view, and maybe they can't even get a compliant editor out there to publish, they will set up their own websites and say Stanford, whatever, and they get quoted as if this was like a legitimate part of the news media. Oh, I mean, they can create their own websites, their own social media accounts. And digital technology has made it so much easier to create an illusion of credibility. And so that's why we really find ourselves in this era of fake news. We are having trouble. And now, of course, with AI, and it's all going to become very confusing. Yeah. And in the effort to loop in current events, but this may not seem at all relevant, but I think it is, the Hollywood Screenwriters Guild and the actors going on strike because of AI, right? Because they see what could happen. And I think you and I are already witnessing what's happening and can happen. We saw that at the conference, of course, with that incredibly frightening presentation on AI. One other particular thread is in the playbook, the effort to discredit universities as a whole, right? If the university is not going to be complicit, as it were, then just trash the whole whole enterprise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was, to me, very scary. I don't want to get too Pollyanna-ish, but it's not just universities. It's science as a whole, and it's democracy as a whole. It goes that deep. The stakes yep, here right. are really high. Absolutely. Because what happens when science, which is the most powerful form of knowledge the world's ever known, when it starts saying what you don't want to hear, you know, you can play on that turf for as long as possible. That, of course, applies to universities, too. You know, you'll play with the university as well as long as possible. But when they don't comply, when there is too much pushback, and they, of course, are by extension, really an arm of science in a lot of ways, then you have to denigrate the institutions as a whole and get people to mistrust science, to mistrust the government, to mistrust the universities, call them elite. And I will say a lot of those arguments are not necessarily coming from the corporation, although many of them are, but they're amplifying or capitalizing on, let's say, parts of government or even some academics that who are making these arguments, they'll amplify that kind of argument. And I just yeah. think it's really dangerous. In some ways, the playbook is very cynical, but I really do view it as sort of a love affair with science. I really think science is an incredible mm. form of knowing the world. And so I, I wanted to try to be able to just understand myself and maybe share with my students and whoever else why we really should put safeguards in place to protect it. It's the university, yeah, but there are certain segments of the university that if they serve the interests of the corporation, they'll leave them intact. For example, STEM, whatever STEM they feel is going to do their bidding, but they hate the humanities. And when you were talking about science in that way, I was thinking that the sciences and the humanities really have to work together here. It's almost like the two cultures argument, but in reverse, that without kind of the moral and ethical sensibilities and and the queries that the humanities raise that precisely might be our bulwark against AI, to be able to question what's produced here, then science can go bad. And so I think we need each other to fortify our strengths against these horrible efforts to denigrate both, as they say, truth and beauty. 
beauty. You mentioned politics, and in your book, you mentioned campus reform, but I'm also thinking of Turning Point USA, which has, I don't know if you know that group, but they, for example, sent 80 buses of protesters to the insurrection. They operate the professor's watch list that asks students to report on professors, and they have gone after Michael Mann. They've gone after all these climate scientists. They've gone after pandemic science, etc. So there you see, it's not just science, it's a whole worldview that holds things together. I'll just put a pin in what you're saying with this line that I use of Thomas Kuhn's in the book, which I love, and he's talking about how there are very special social conditions required for science to work. And there's no guarantee that those social conditions remain in place. And Mm -hmm. his understanding, you know, he's a philosopher, and what you're saying about the humanities, this kind of reflection and a kind of meta-analysis that occurs of the much broader social context. And of course, Robert Proctor's work and the history of science being so important to understanding how this all unfolds. I couldn't agree with you more that the humanities and the sciences, really what it's about is a kind of commitment to the truth and a commitment to the context in which the truth is generated and a commitment to rigor. And I don't see those as actually very distinct from one another, although I do love the scientific method. Well, I think that we're in such a good space here talking about the humanities and science and what drove you to write the book. It is such a comprehensive book. Chapter three is very centered on the university, but you also have so many other types of information. Some of it only exists in like a paragraph or two. Some of it's spread out over several pages, but it seems like you've really looked into every nook and cranny. And so I have to ask you this, Jennifer, do you get depressed when you see the plethora of tactics and strategies and I don't want to use the word too broadly, but conspiracies and networks. You use the word networks, right? It's not just the arsenal. It's the networks that reinforce it. How did you fare emotionally, intellectually? How did you deal with it? A, and what sustained you? I guess that's one of the other questions. Yeah, Yeah, you might say something about my personality that actually this is very much the product of being depressed. So I was supposed to write a completely different book, sort of optimistic, Mm -hmm. and it was called Unfamiliar Studies and Self-Restraint. And it was about this way that cooperation emerges that will, you know, curtail self-interest, much more evolutionary thinking. And then Trump won the election. And what happened then, which because I started my undergraduate career in 1998, I was already very interested in climate change. The Kyoto Protocol had just failed. And then I lived through that turbulence of the Bush era vis-a-vis climate change, Gore losing, all of that. And then we had Obama who brought us to the Paris Agreement, and it felt like things were really moving. Like we had this disappearance of climate denial with the election of Barack Obama that I found really fascinating to live through. And then on the day that I gave birth to my daughter, Mm -hmm. Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And I was like, why? This is not the book that I want to write right now. I was so mad and I was so mad that we were taken back to an era of climate denial that I thought was behind us. And I needed a way to channel that. For a lot of people, they deal with depression by being morose, but I deal with it by being angry, which is also not a very good, healthy state of mind. So I needed a place to put it all, especially with a young baby. And so I approached my editor, who is a marvelous person, was a marvelous person. He unfortunately passed away before this book was out Mm. in the world. And he Dan Frank said, yeah, I like what you're thinking. Go for it. 
don't submit a new proposal, just run with it. And so the book really comes out of the anger I felt of the resurgence of climate denial in the United States and feeling like I really wanted to understand where this all was coming from. And I had done work. I have academic work in that area, but I wanted to, as you say, go into every nook and cranny I could find. I know I still miss some things. But I think the book is pretty comprehensive and I wanted that kind of bird's eye view. And again, I wanted to write it in this way that helped me see new lines of inquiry. Yeah, that's so interesting and so powerful. And hearing you say what you did about, oh my God, here's Trump being elected, undoing all the progress we made on climate science, because I'm exponentially older than you. I felt exactly the same way, but with regard to feminism, gays, lesbians, anti-war, racism, I came up in the late 60s, 70s. And our generation really felt like you know, the EPA, organic foods. These were all good things. Love, not war. And Trump just reversed the whole mindset about how we treat each other. And I, the things that I got, not only reading your book, but hearing you speak today, is how truth really is so important for humanity in terms of being able to treat each other decently. The more lies, the more myths you have about, the more fears that you can stir up about this, that, or the other thing. And even in terms of climate science, the fear, you're taking away the engine of capitalism, you're taking away science and discovery, and shouldn't we be figuring out how to capture carbon and all this? And we're saying, maybe we're just leaving in the earth for a while. But all these things are positive and enabling. And what you're doing is with the anger that you felt which so many of us felt, and the depression and the confusion, is that you've given us a playbook, a way to fight all of this, because you've unveiled all these operations and given us so much insight into how these things work that we're better equipped to fight it. So I really can't thank you enough for doing this book. I'm glad you did it. Bless your editor for having had the foresight to see. Good books always are better when their authors are passionate. Thank you for your passion, and thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, David, for allowing me to speak out of place. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview. 